The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the first Doctor story, The Mythmakers. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Hey there. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Uh, folks, if we, it would be a huge benefit to the show and to you by, by, uh, by coincidence. Right in, if you went to the Apple Podcasts uh, store, the Apple Podcast app, or any other place where you can write a review and write a review of the show, give us a nice shining review. That helps other people discover the show and grows this audience and grows the community around it. Uh, and also, if you share the podcast with your Doctor Who loving friends, that's a really huge benefit to the show. So we really do appreciate it and thank you. I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called The Catholics of Oz. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Oz, O-Z. And finally, stick around to the end of the show because not only do we have some listener feedback, but we maybe have another special bonus at the end. But definitely stick around for that listener feedback. We have lots of feedback on our discussion on the church on Ruby Road. And uh, that brings us to the discussion of this episode. We're talking about the myth makers, this first Doctor story. Uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap? Yeah, well, it's the time of legends. And if we're on course, going to see a few men about a horse. Vicky's fallen from a boy from Troy. She should read a play. And that play should be Troilus and Cressida. It's the time of legends. And if we're on course, going to see a few guys about a horse. Vicky's fallen for a boy from Troy. She should read a play. And that play should be Troilus and Cresto. May the gods bless you. It's the Myth Makers. <laughs> and that is from Billy Hartnell's Cranky Time Lord Band, which is the uh, song for the first Doctor released by Sycorax Rock on YouTube. He's a very creative YouTuber. He's a very talented musician. He's very educated about the history of Doctor Who. And he, for several years now, he has been having a project called 13 Songs for 13 Doctors, which was later modified to 13-ish songs for 13-ish doctors because they introduced some new ones like the War Doctor and so forth. And, um, and you know, it, he, he, what he did in this series is he took a piece of popular music from the time when the, a given doctor was on the air, and then he rewrote the song to fit what happened with the doctor. And he also made videos, which are very creative, um, you know, illustrating what's being sung about. And like, for example, you know, Tom Baker's doctor was in the late 70s. And so he used the the song um, Bohemian Rhapsody, which he then changed into Pridonian Rhapsody since the fourth doctor, since the doctor's a member of the Pridonian house on Gallifrey. And each song recounts the adventures of the Doctor and cap kind of captures the personality of the Doctor and has some rather subtle jokes uh, in there as well. And it's just such a great series. Uh, it's it's so well done. I actually have downloaded all the videos and, and yanked off the uh, music and made a playlist that I have on my phone that I listen to when I drive around. And... Um, there was, you know, this project has been going on for years because it takes so long to make these videos. But in time for the 60th anniversary specials, he finished the last song. It was the song for the first Doctor. He did a medley of Beatles hits from back in the early 60s and or early mid 60s. And it's called Billy Hartnell's Cranky Time Lord Band. And since he had a little plot summary of this episode, I thought we'd use it. And we'll have the complete song with uh, Sycorax Rocks' permission at the end of this episode. I also hope we'll be able to interview Sycorax Rocks, Sycorax Rock in the future. But excellently well done. And now here's my plot summary. This week, the first Doctor, Vicky, and Stephen land in the Trojan War about 1200 BC. They're quickly separated, and the Doctor, who was initially identified as Zeus, falls into the Greek camp with Stephen. 
However, he admits that he's a time traveler from the future. Meanwhile, the TARDIS with Vicky inside it is taken to Troy, where Vicky also admits that she's from the future. Both groups are accused of being spies from, for the other side, and both are sentenced to die unless they can help their side win. The doctor initially proposes that the Greeks build primitive flying machines, while Stephen, who is impersonating a deceased Greek soldier named Diomedes, goes to Troy to rescue Vicky. Eventually, the doctor proposes the Trojan horse, which he had initially regarded as a ridiculous invention of Homer in the Iliad. At the same time, Vicky, who the Trojans have named Cressida, begins to fall in love with a young Trojan named Troilus. When the house, when uh, the horse is brought into the city, Vicky urges Troilus to leave the city to find Stephen or Diomedes. Eventually, the Greek warriors break out of the horse and destroy Troy. In the midst of this, Vicky speaks privately with the doctor and tells him off screen that she plans to leave. Her place on the TARDIS is taken by a young priestess named Katerina, although they pronounce it Katrina sometimes. Um, Katrina, Katerina believes that she is dead, that the doctor is a god, and the TARDIS is a temple transporting them to the afterlife. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Troilus sees the destroyed city of Troy and thinks that Vicky, or Cressida, has betrayed them to the, Tro to the Greeks. But Vicky finds him, explains that she's not a traitor, and the two start their new lives as Troilus and Cressida. The end. Very good. Since Father Corey's not here, I'll start with just giving my brief overall impression, which is I thought it was fun, it was witty, mm -hmm. uh, the lots of humor, and it was uh, pure historical, which I always enjoy. It's a lot of fun to see the Doctor interact with history without introducing science fiction-y elements apart from the Doctor. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, well acted. Some of the, the – the, we'll talk, I'm sure, about some of the other actors, the guest actors – uh, were were fun to listen to and uh, yeah it was it was really good. How about you, Jimmy? Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, it's a nice tight four parter. You know, sometimes they would do six or even more parts, which tends to make it drag. You know, back in this period of the show, but this was just a nice tight four parts. It was uh, it was well done. There was a lot of humor. I have certain uh, exchanges in my notes that we'll talk about that I thought were particularly funny. And I thought it was really nice um, for uh, for Vicky. Now, behind the scenes, Vicky, the actress who played Vicky, Maureen O'Brien, had apparently been complaining about uh, the dialogue on the show. Um, she had, I, I gather in particular, complained about the dialogue in Galaxy 4 which we talked about a while back, but she didn't like the dialogue and she complained about it and was told, eh, it's not Shakespeare. So the, when they wrote her out as a character, as a Shakespearean character, because <laughs> Troilus and Cressida is one of Shakespeare's plays that was viewed as being a little ironic. However, they didn't tell her that they were planning on writing her character out and she didn't know it until she saw the scripts. In fact, According to one account I read, she didn't know it until she saw the fourth script, which wow. is uh, – I wonder if that's true because it's – I mean, this could be hindsight bias, but it's clear they're setting, setting her up to leave because she's already falling in love with Troilus before we get to episode four. And um, and so, you know, you can see if you know it's – at least if you know it's coming, you can see the, the departure coming. And this is only the third time we've had a companion depart. Um, we had uh, Susan depart, which when the doctor stranded her. We had uh, Ian and Barbara depart when they got a time machine that could take them back to their own time roughly. And now this is the third time a companion has departed, and it's the first voluntary departure for love. This will, this, you know, Susan was kind of fallen in love, but the doctor then stranded her, so it wasn't a voluntary yeah. departure. Um, this is the first time a companion has said, I'm staying because I've fallen in love with this guy. There will be others. Um, that's also going to happen with Joe Grant. That's how Joe Grant leaves. She falls in love and gets married. Um, that's how Leela leaves. She stays on Gallifrey. Yep. Gallifrey. Um, P 
Harry, depending on the ending you want to buy, either <laughs> has her brain replaced with a dictatorial tyrant slug brain or falls in love with King um, uh, King Irkanos um, and becomes a warrior queen. And then Mel leaves saying <laughs> she's going to keep Sabalom Glitz on the straight and narrow, but... Um, Kind of think there's got to be something more to it than good citizenship <laughs> on on Mel's part. Yeah. Um, and then interestingly, they haven't done this with New Who. In New Who, none of the companions have have left because they fell in love with someone on their travels. Right. Right. Yeah. That. I mean, they fall in love after, but you know, yeah. or before, but but never. Yeah. Someone they met along the way. Yeah. It's true. But I thought this was a really nice exit for Maureen O'Brien because she she comes across as her character, Vicky, comes across as really competent. Yes. You know, she's able to function without the doctor and Steve. She's just she's doing fine. Um and she's handling tough situations. She's on top of things. And and she's shown to be very competent. She is not a little child to get kidnapped you know, and right. and have to be rescued. She's doing fine on her own. And she gets to come across as very cool and calm and collected and mature and in charge. And I thought it was a really nice presentation of the character. Yeah, she has lots of agency in this one. She has control of her destiny. And she's not the child that Barbara and Ian sort of adopted in, when her, in her introduction in a way. Um, she, she's been allowed to mature a mm -hmm. little bit, at least in this one. You're right. Uh, we should mention that this, the Mythmakers is only available as audio. This is one of the lost stories. All, all four parts are are not available in visual form, except for um, some clips. Yeah, some very brief eight millimeter clips someone took of their TV. <laughs> uh, and so that so it's all audio, but it works because I think it's, as it mentioned somewhere on the TARDIS wiki, the the writer was a radio writer. So it he he's used to writing for thing, you know, John uh no Donald Cotton. Um he's used to writing for people who aren't seeing what he's writing. And so mm -hmm. it it works really well. Uh that and the and the acting. Yeah. There are animated versions done by fans that you can watch. I I saw part of an episode of one and didn't like the way it looked. So I watched a Telesnaps version. Okay. And the Telesnaps version I thought was just fine. Yeah, I listened to the Audible version, uh, mm -hmm. you know, off of uh, audible.com, uh, and that worked. It, would, it has linking narration by Stephen Purvis, the, who plays mm -hmm. Stephen, the, the, the companion, uh, and that worked out really well. Um, yeah, in the Telesnaps version I saw, they had the equivalent of linking narration, because there are a few things that are purely visual, um, and they would run a crawl on the screen to tell you yep. what's happening between the Telesnaps. Right, right. Uh, the, t the 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 linking narration worked really well, and uh, you know Stephen Purvis does a really good job with it. Um, so the the story here is the Iliad. I mean, um, the, it's sort it's, of the end of the Iliad. They take yeah. liberties. This is not strictly right out of Homer, right? Um, the for example, uh, Hector gets killed in episode one in this, and Hec the Trojan warrior Hector is killed by Achilles and it doesn't happen that way in, in the way they did it here in the, in the Iliad. Right. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, he's, I, I think he's distracted by the TARDIS appearing, right? I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what ultimately in this one, at least in the story he, he gets uh, killed. Yeah. And, that's, a, that's actually a, a funny bit because we yeah. have Hector, you know, he's, he's, he believes in the gods of Troy, which, apparently are different than the Greek gods and include something called the Great Horse of Asia. Um, but uh, And he's kind of mocking the Greek gods, which is really getting up Achilles' nose. And, um, and, and then Hector is like, well, if Zeus is, is real, let him appear right now. And then the TARDIS shows up. <laughs> and of course, Achilles immediately thinks that the doctor is, is God, is, is Zeus. And, um, and, and, and I love, this is one of the early funny lines in this, um, you know, the doctor is talking to him about, well, do, you know, 
do I look like Zeus? Do I, I? You'll see I don't have a beard. And and Achilles says, well, you appear to us in many forms. Uh, to me, you, you know, he, he names some examples, like, you know, Toledo, you appeared as a swan and so forth. And to me, in the guise of an old beggar. <laughs> the doctor's very very put up like these are very nice clothes <laughs> but the doctor does cause hector's death i think that's the uh yeah and it's not the only time in this story that he changes history or that he's the cause of what the history that we know and we'll get to that i, I think with the later on with the uh the horse but uh another really funny character in this is odysseus i just think mm-hmm. Like he is bombastic and arrogant, and uh, and and he sees through. The, he knows the doctor's not Zeus. Like it's, he's clear, early on, he's like, "There's no way you're Zeus. You're just a, a, a you're a spy from the Trojans." And he wants to. He keeps wanting to kill the doctor and Stephen on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, so that's really funny. And I mean, he doesn't believe that Achilles killed when he first encounters Achilles. That's another funny moment because he's like. Um, of course, you didn't. You you don't have the skill to kill Hector. Um, uh, you, you know, you must have run him to exhaustion as you were chasing him around, or as he was chasing you. I think is how he put it, mm-hmm. or found him dead already. So he's very dismissive of others. Um, yeah, it, it's a very funny character. I really like it. Yeah, this is something that's that I found interesting is the way the characters from mythology are portrayed in this. Um, the well, I. I Mythology isn't exactly the right word, more legend. So for people who may not be aware, for many centuries, the Trojan, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the two great works by Homer, um, were regarded as just poetry, as just fiction. And it was – and now they both – concerned the well the Iliad concerns the end of the 10-year Trojan War and the Odyssey then concerns – uh, Odysseus's tenure track to get home from the Trojan War. And these are parts of a much larger poetic cycle from from ancient Greece that we know a little bit about, but they're really just this it's like you're watching an 11 part series and you only get to see parts 10 and 11 um, because there's this whole big surrounding, you know preceding, uh, set of stories about the Trojan War, and we don't get to see any of that in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Although because those are, are missing, they're yeah. missing. Yeah, but we we have um, references, you know, in other works to what some of that material would have been like. And then there's also the sequel, the sequel, which is the Aeneid, and they even mention Aeneas um, in this. We don't see him, but Aeneid, the Aeneid is about the journey of Aeneas after the Trojan War, where he leaves Troy and goes and founds Rome. Oh, right. So, so you, this is how the Romans hooked themselves into this, was via yeah. the Aeneid. And, um, uh, but despite the fact that scholars for many centuries regarded all this as just fiction, at least after the Enlightenment they did, um, in the 1800s, the European archaeologist uh, Heinrich Schliemann looked at clues in the Iliad and the Odyssey and deduced that, the, that Troy was an actual place. It, the site is in Turkey, and it's currently known as Hisserlik. And this has become widely accepted in the scholarly community that, yeah, there was some kind of a Trojan War. It probably occurred about 1200 B.C. Um, And Homer is basing his epic poetry on that conflict, although how much liberty he took, it's hard to say. But probably, probably it didn't start with a competition among the goddesses about who's the fairest, <laughs> who's the fairest of them all. Pretty because, certain that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, for people who may not be aware, so you basically have this cat fight among the Olympian goddesses about who's the fairest of them all. And to settle the question, they hire a, a guy from Troy, a Trojan prince, the son of King Priam, named Paris. And they let Paris decide who's the most beautiful goddess. And the prize he gets is the most beautiful human woman, Helen, who is unconveniently married to this Greek dude, Menelaus. And so so after Paris decides, 
he gets to have uh, Helen. He takes her to Troy. She becomes known as Helen of Troy. And this really, really honks off the Greeks because this is what this is spousal abduction. Yeah. And, um, and, and Menelaus so, is a king. Menelaus is a king. Yeah. So yeah. really important spousal abduction. Abduction, and so they they rally all the different Greek uh, city states rally their forces and go to invade Troy for ten years, and thus Helen becomes known as having the face that launched a thousand ships. Right, and we get to meet a lot of these people. We get to meet Paris. We get to meet Menelaus. We get to meet Agamemnon, who's who's another who's a relative of Menelaus. Um, we never get to see Helen. No, nope. and which nope. is kind of weird. I read one account that said they uh, they they were they didn't think they could get an actress, <laughs> could afford an actress who was yeah. that outstandingly beautiful to be believable <laughs> as Helen. I, yeah. I read I read this in the Space Helmet for a Cow uh, history of Doctor Who for that bit, and uh, as is his wont, the author then says, "None taken," said the rest of the female cast. that's good but the the greeks in this and especially odysseus are not achilles there there are exceptions like achilles is a nice guy yeah um but the greek leaders like agamemnon and menelaus and odysseus what a bunch of jerks (laughs) you know i i had in my notes odysseus is rather a bore you know, I have B, the exact same word. Yeah, B O O R. <laughs> yeah, and and then Achilles later calls it out on screen and says the man is a bore. Yeah, and it's yep. like yes he is. But then you look at the at the at the citizens of Troy, and with one exception, they're all great. You know, Priam, King Priam is an he's such a nice guy. Yes, he's pleasant. He's happy. He's he's generous. He, he, he likes Vicky. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a great guy. Um, his son um, Paris is a coward, and and we get comedy out of him being a coward because his father keeps telling him, "Get back to the war, go kill some more Greeks, and in particular, kill this one Greek." And he's like. Uh, he's Paris is constantly finding excuses to do something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Troilus is a nice guy. You know, he has yep. to be in order for Vicky to fall in love with him. So they're all great. The only the only not great person from Troy is Cassandra, who is right. who is uh the prophetess. Uh, he's all she's also I think in this Priam's daughter. Um yep. but she it, wow is she a sh- she's just Jimmy Downer. <laughs> yeah, on everything. Now but she was right. Well, that's <laughs> the everything. Thing. Yeah, that's the thing. In um in Greek in 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 the Iliad, she's this prophetess who constantly is telling people the truth about this is gonna not gonna end well, and nobody listens to her. Yes. So nobody likes prophets of doom. <laughs> yeah. But here she's she's not just telling them. I mean, she could be a nice person and tell them, guys, you really want to. Yeah. This is going to end badly. And she's not. She's just angry and obnoxious the whole time. <laughs> yeah. If she'd peppered it with a little, you know, her her, her salt, a little sugar, you know, what I mean, like she yeah. might have got a little further <laughs> uh, with people with her 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 uh, prophecies. Um, and I want to go back to some, the reason people thought that the Iliad was fiction was because they just to kind of close the loop. They didn't have a, hit, a uh, record of a place called Troy, and they, everyone mm-hmm. assumed, well, if there was this big war, we would, you know, we would have a the Troy would exist somewhere. And so when Schliemann found Troy, that was mm-hmm. the oh, that must be the place. Uh, so that that and it's a fascinating story. I assume we'll eventually talk about oh, that on Mysterious World. We we may well <laughs> talk about it on Mysterious World. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned Menelaus. I think he was a very funny character because he, he he's the whole reason they're there, mm-hmm. and they've been there for ten years. And he's kind of like he's he's a little bit cowardly, like a little bit like hey, do I really have to go out and fight? But he's, he's also, also a just, drunk. Yeah, right. And he's kind of fed up. He's like, you know, I really didn't like Helen all that much to begin yeah. with. So maybe <laughs> that's maybe great. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was such a it was that was so funny. I I thought that was that was great. And Agamemnon's like, no, this is for honor. We're sticking yeah. it out, you know. And, and that's part of the thing. You could imagine this is a very human situation. You could imagine, you know, I really didn't like her a lot, but honor is kind of compelling me to go try to get her back. <laughs> Right, because otherwise and, I'll look weak as a king if I let someone abduct my wife, even though I don't like her. 
Yes. And and Odysseus is there for the loot. He wants his share of the booty. He wants to get uh you know, sack Troy and get the and get the stuff. Uh and so um so then and then the doctor and, and I I could calling um Peter Purvis Stephen Purvis. Stephen's mm-hmm. the companion's name. Peter is the actor's name. But uh, the doctor kind of drops into the middle of all this right at the end. This is the you know, the end of the war here, the after the end of ten years. And it's kind of funny, you know. At one point, the TARDIS with Vicky inside is taken by the Trojans into the city. And in, in a way, the TARDIS itself kind of becomes a Trojan horse, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, for its own destruction, which is I thought was a neat little. They don't and they don't call that out. They don't, you know, they bang us over the head with it. But it's kind of true. Yeah, It is. And in fact, Cassandra even even latches on to the TARDIS as this because she says, I had this dream that, that the Greeks left something outside our city. And it would result in disaster. And she at first thinks, but I didn't see what it was they left us and in her dream. And so she at first thinks it's the TARDIS, that there's that there's going to be Greek soldiers inside the TARDIS. And, and then it's interesting to see how the other characters dismiss her, her prophecy. Because now she's saying, okay, you've brought the TARDIS into the city. This is going to be a disaster because it was left for us by the Greeks. It's going to have Greek soldiers in it. They're going to break out at night and kill all of us. And they're going... Cassandra, it's so small. How uh, it could have like <laughs> one Greek soldier in it. Now, we the audience know. Oh no, there could be an army in there, <laughs> right? But they don't know that. And 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 Cassandra is ready for this objection. If she acknowledges, yeah, there could be like one Greek guy in it, and then he could open the gates, and all the rest of them will pour in and kill us in our sleep. Right. Right. Which is what happens. They open the gates in the middle of the night, and they pour in to kill them in their sleep. Um, there is a nice moment where the, the so the doctor's been taken by himself to the Greek camp, and Stephen meanwhile gets captured and brought in, and doc, the doctor has this very quick turnabout yeah. with Stephen, where <laughs> he's, he's ready to sacrifice Stephen to the gods. Yeah, yes, he's, uh, he's a spy. He must be a spy. He should be killed. In my temple, so take him back to my temple, put him inside, and uh, I'll I'll come back and slay him myself. And it's like, oh, and Odysseus is is too smart for him to to go for, fall for that one. But uh, I I did think it was a neat little bit of uh, uh, quick thinking for the doctor there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the the Odysseus gives the doctor basically gives the doctor an ultimatum. We get a, we get our big conflict. You have two days to find a way to let the Greeks capture Troy. Meanwhile, Vic, Vicky, who has been named Cressida by King Priam, has just, been given... Just because Vicky is a weird-sounding name to them. <laughs> right, right. Um, is giving given her an ultimatum to... What was exactly the ultimatum? I forget exactly what it was. It was... Well, um, it was basically she has to do the same thing. And, right. Yeah. To get rid of the Greeks. Yeah. Um, to prove that she's not a Greek spy, that was that was you know against Cassandra's accusation, um, and so we have this, these competing timelines and competing uh, goals. Uh, so the uh, but um, I have a note just that the, the banter among Paris and Priam and Cassandra was amusing the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, um, you, as you say, Paris is a kind of simpering, cowardly fool, and he has to fight. He ends up fighting with Stephen at one point, mm-hmm. and it's there's a kind of Monty oh, Python esque yeah. "I yield" moment. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's actually how because so Stephen's plan is I'm going to get dressed as this deceased Greek soldier Diomedes. <laughs> And then I'm going to go get in a. I'm going to go let myself get captured by the Trojans, and then they'll bring me into Troy, and then I can find Vicky and help her and rescue her. And so he he goes out. He, he Paris runs across him. They start fighting. All of a sudden, Stephen unexpectedly surrenders, and <laughs> right. and and talks him into. Well, you're not going to kill me because that would be dishonorably. I mean, I I surrendered. You don't kill a man. You just surrendered. It's like, well, actually, sometimes yes, they do. But, <laughs> um, but okay, so fine. But but uh, Priam has been sent out. Paris. To, has, I'm yeah. sorry, Paris yeah. has been sent out to go find Achilles. And so that's what he's out here. His dad has assigned him go go back to the war, go fight, go find Achilles and fight him and kill him. But he doesn't want to fight him and kill him because Achilles is like this super 
genius warrior. And right. so, so what Stephen does is he says, uh, you know, as 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 Paris is kind of dithering about what do I do with Stephen, Stephen kind of points out that taking me back to Troy as a prisoner is what you could do instead of go find Achilles. And he realizes, <laughs> oh, yeah, bringing back a Greek prisoner. My dad will accept that as an excuse. And so he, <laughs> he takes Steve back to Troy um, rather than, than continue looking for Achilles. The exchange is funny because, like, Stephen's like, I yield. And then, and then uh, it, uh, Paris stops and goes, I beg your pardon. Yeah. I yield. <laughs> This sort of thing just isn't done. <laughs> uh, to be a prisoner of war, it, it's it's bad form. It's very bad form. <laughs> I just thought, was, I, I just thought that was I laughed out loud at that one. That was good. Um, now the doctor starts coming up with ideas for how to get. Oh. You mentioned the flying machines. He dismisses <laughs> the Trojan horse as very impractical. Like at right. first, it's it's a good, no no no. This is a very practical. And so he comes up with catapults. We could. We well, can use catapults to send the flying fly machines over. Yeah, and the flying machines are going to be basically giant paper airplanes, right? Like made out of leather or something. And you have a guy in a giant paper airplane <laughs> holding on, holding on, <laughs> and you put it on a catapult and launch it up into the air, and then he's supposed to drop down over Troy and not. <laughs> this is really this is worse than the Trojan horse. Yes. In terms of practicality and finally Odysseus says, "Okay, guess what? You get to be our first test pilot." <laughs> and it's at that point the doctor says, "Uh, maybe we should try a horse or something. <laughs> Perhaps if we build a giant wooden badger." That's a money python. <laughs> uh yeah, the the and and he when he uh the doctor calls it a catapult, which is the Greeks would have been unfamiliar with that. Those are, had been invented in the future. Um, he needs a catapult. That sounds like a vulgar oath <laughs> where he likes mm -hmm. the word and he, and he likes that because it sounds vulgar. Um, yeah, so that and he he does say well, that. Oh, actually, it does if you know some Greek terms for certain types of relationships. <laughs> okay, so so it is a, a little bit of a pun if you know Greek. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a if you want to know what I'm talking about, uh, look up catamite. Oh right, yes, that, that's true. Um, so the so the the the, catap the catapult with the the, the paper airplane. D Odysseus says, "Oh, I made you know paper airplanes when I was a child when I should have been doing my studies. I got yelled at for making them." So, you know, it kind of highlights the fact that although he calls them darts, paper darts, yes, because, because they, they don't have airplanes. <laughs> airplanes. It, it highlights the fact that as much as we think how advanced we are, like the people in the past, they had things. They just mm -hmm. didn't. They hadn't put it all together yet um so we do get this um discussion of the trojan horse now and the and, and it creates a bit of a paradox doesn't it because the doctor says well homer has described how a you know the this trojan this ho this wooden giant wooden horse was dragged into the city and the greek soldiers came out of it at night and uh, opened the gates but the doctor's the one who invents it so it's a bit of a you know, it's a, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, not exactly a bootstrap paradox, but it's, it is a paradox. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, but then we have this, you know, he has the, the thing where the Greeks all get in their ships and sail away and leave this horse knowing within the story that the Tro the Trojans worship horses, as you mentioned before. And so they drag it in. And so you have, again, another scene of the doctor and Odysseus and Odysseus's men, because Odysseus made the doctor come along uh, inside the horse, waiting for their moment to drop out. And uh, and there's, there's some funny banter between the Odysseus and the doctor inside, where the doctor, you know, can't get comfortable, and uh, he talks about it's a forty foot drop from the belly of the horse, I guess, or something. Yeah, and and he's going to drop the doctor out first, and uh, I just is very good. Yeah, they so. Um... Oh, and I had it, and it just slipped away. Ah, dang! So, um, yeah. So the, when they do come boiling out of this thing and open up the gates, um, there's that. There, of course, there's craziness in Troy, and uh, you know, people are running about, and you know, this whole time Troilus has been falling for Vicky slash Cressida, mm -hmm. and has been jealous of 
uh, Stephen as Diomedes, and that's actually the plot of Shakespeare's play, Troilus yes. and Cressida. Yeah, so um, so in Troilus and Cressida, which actually Troilus and Cressida are not a big part of their own play, um, yeah. but um, it you do have this plot of Troilus becomes jealous of Cressida, who he thinks is being unfaithful to him with a Greek soldier named Diomedes. And so they've, they've taken that and from the play, because this isn't in the Iliad. This is, uh, Cressida is not part of ancient Greek mythology. She's like a later invention that people came up with in the middle ages. Right. Um, but, um uh you they've they're essentially remixing the elements of the play Troilus and Cressida where you have Vicky for Cressida and Stephen for Diomedes and then Troilus having the same kind of I I I really like this girl but I think she's cheating on me with this Greek soldier. Right. And the play itself is a little different there's a few other uh, elements uh, in there but yeah it's essentially um the same. And then you then you have this you know, where at the end she decides to stay with mm-hmm. with, and it, it, this and it's kind of abrupt. Like it's it's kind of uh, the doctor and and Stephen and Cassandra's handmaiden Katarina all go into the TARDIS and Vicky doesn't. And yeah, there's an earlier scene where Vicky, uh, when the doctor gets to Troy, he finds Vicky and she says, "Doctor, I must talk to you right now." And she leads him into the TARDIS, and they have a private conversation. And it's there, which we don't see the scene, but it's there that she says, Doctor, I'm going to be staying. And then we see the Doctor coming out of the TARDIS afterwards, after the conversation. And so um, so there, there, it, 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 this is probably would be a lot clearer if we had the motion video of this. Yeah. Um, but she does off screen tell the Doctor that she's going to be staying and it's so nicely and solemnly and romantically played. Yes, yeah, it is a it is a good for you know among companion departures. It's it's a pretty good one. It's it's nicely done. It's certainly way better than Melanie Bush's departure. <laughs> yes, or, or poor Sarah Jane left in uh, yeah. in what she thought was Croydon and turned out not to be Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and and that's where the episode ends. Now there's apparently a. The, uh, there was a scene that was written that we did that didn't get included of an exchange between Vicky and Katarina, where Katarina tells this, uh, Vicky that there's a prophecy of her, de- you know, impending death, mm-hmm. which apparently is she's a she's not a she's not a companion for very long, is she? No, she's a companion for like five episodes, um, not five stories, five episodes, mm. um, and a. So there are different stories about what was going to happen with Vicky. Now, I think Vicky is a great companion. I really like Vicky. But Maureen O'Brien got up the nose of the behind-the-scenes people. And so they were planning on killing her. And according to one story that I've read, it would, it was, it, she was going to continue into the, the Daleks' master plan, which is the next story. And she was going to die instead of Katerina. And so they, for some reason, they decided to give Vicky a nicer exit at the end of the Myth Makers, and then they brought in Katarina as the new companion. And you, it's possible that they, it's possible that they intended to, that they just said, okay, now that we have, now that Vicky's not going to die, it's going to be Katarina who goes out the airlock. Right. But it's also possible they they had changed that and said, Well, we got rid of we got rid of Vicky, so Katarina's just the new companion indefinitely. But then the other story I've read is that it quickly became obvious that Katarina was very problematic as a companion because she, unlike Jamie, um, who would be introduced later in the second doctor's time, she didn't just roll with things she didn't understand. She's from 1200 BC, and even though I don't think this is historically accurate, she didn't know what a key is. Right. And so the doctor would have to, like, explain what a key is to her. And they realized quickly, okay, this isn't going to work if the doctor's having to explain every little thing from later times to Katerina, and they decided to write her out. And they gave her a great exit. 
mm. because she we haven't gotten to it yet, but she sacrifices herself in order to save the doctor and everybody else. She's in an airlock with a villain and she pulls the switch to airlock herself and the villain in order to protect everybody else. Mm. And so she really goes out on a high note. Wow. It's like Adric only only it's 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 doing something good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Adric except we don't cheer at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so I before we finish I just want to mention some fun puns that were the working titles of the story itself and the uh, the, the various episodes in the story. Um the uh, the working episode titles included uh, Zeus ex machina, machina mm-hmm. which would have been like the, the doctor God, in the machine. Zeus from the machine, yeah. Yes. Uh, a doctor in the horse, or is there a doctor in the horse, which is, <laughs> which there was, uh, a pun on Doctor of the House. And then uh, Small Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, uh, Quick Return. Which, which was, is actually the title of the second episode. Yes. Um, and then uh, they did, they did you know, try to trick fans. They named the third episode Death of a Spy, which we were supposed to infer that it was either Stephen or Vicky, who were both accused of, uh, of being spies at that point. Um, but it turned out it was Cyclops, not the Cyclops, but the a, 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 one-eyed guy, man. a one-eyed man who's called Cyclops. Yes, he was yeah. a spy for Odysseus, um, and he we, we, he does die on screen. Um, so uh, just I thought those were fun. That, that one's actually kind of funny because it, he's I, I forget if Cyclops is actually mute or if he's pretending to be mute. But when they catch him, they're like, "Who are you?" And he's pretending he's either is mute or is pretending to be mute. They can't tell and then he's instantly killed and then i think it's priam says now we'll never know who he was <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yes it was priam yeah. uh any, any other notes on this one jimmy yeah one of the things i noticed is um william hartnell is having a lot of billy fluffs in this story these are occasions where he where the actor misreads the line and then mm. tries to cover for it by correcting what he said um and this this happens uh, quite a number of times. Um, so it's clear that he's getting towards the – these are some of the problems that would – he was also apparently getting – he was quite quank, cranky behind the scenes as well. Um, in fact, I saw an interview with Maureen O'Brien where she was saying, yeah, my uh, job at this point was basically to calm, calm William Hartnell down five times a day. And I was okay with that. It was fine. Um, and, and he really liked her. Um, and when he heard that she was being written out, it's like, this will not stand, but it did. Um, you know, neither Peter Purvis nor William Hartnell wanted, wanted, uh, Maureen O'Brien to leave. Um, but there is a, a, like at the, to give an example of one of the Billy Fluffs as they're called, um, when the doctor is talking to Katerina, at the end, she ref- she's thinking he's a god, and he says, "I am not a doc. I am not a god." <laughs> and it's like, okay, she didn't just call you doc. You know, that yeah. would be an ace kind of thing or something, or a Melanie Bush kind of thing. She called you a god, and he, the actor, initially responded as if she had said <clears throat> doc, and then caught it and changed it to god. So you can see those little things creeping in. Incidentally, Maureen O'Brien has returned in recent times to the role of uh, of Vicki Pallister. Um, For one of the box sets, they did an introduction. They've been doing this with some of the recent box sets of of home media where they'll they'll write like a short, like less than five-minute sketch involving or scene involving the original actors in character. And so there's one—and these are— Counted as canonical by TARDIS Wikia, which I don't see any reason they shouldn't be. They're produced by the BBC and showing us these characters doing stuff. Um, and the one that features Maureen O'Brien is called The Storyteller, where Vicky, as an old woman, is relating, you know, adventures with the Doctor. Mm. Also, she was in Tales of the TARDIS, where she right. and Stephen got to meet in the memory TARDIS and for the 60th anniversary and so she's done Vicky Pallister a couple of times recently as a as a as an elderly woman. Um, there also are a number of quotes in this that I thought were memorable. One of them is when Vicky is in Troy and 
there have just been orders for her to be and Stephen to be led away. And Vicky says, where are they taking us? And Prime says, to the dungeons. Oh, don't worry. You'll find them quite comfortable. I often spend an hour or two down there myself when I've got tired of things up here. Yeah, illustration of how pleasant King Prime is. <laughs> yes, yes. Um there's another one where Cassandra is um is talking about Vicky and she's telling her father, She didn't tell you because it's some form of treachery. Don't trust her father. And Prime says, Oh, stuff and nonsense. Oh, Go and feed the sacred serpents or something. If you can't be pleasant at a time like this, Cassandra, I don't want to see you. (laughs) It's just like, go and feed the sacred serpents. Um, But then there's a line Odysseus had that really was an eye-opener for me, because this is a family show, remember? Um, The doctor doctor calls for Odysseus and says, come here quickly. And then Odysseus says, what is it now, doctor? Upon my soul, you're making me as nervous as a bacchanated or first orgy. Why don't you just try and get some sleep? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, okay. Most kids probably won't know what a bacchanate is, but yes. um, more of them might know what an orgy is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty risque for uh, BBC uh, after Saturday afternoon. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would have been weird. Um, speaking of uh, Odysseus, I did see a funny meme that's not from the show, but it was funny because mm-hmm. it bring it up. Um, it's uh, Odysseus. He's getting into a ship with his, his sailors. He goes, "Well, gentlemen, let's go on our Odyssey." And one of them says, "Odyssey? What's that?" Oh, it's a word that means going on a long journey uh, that'll take ten years. But I'm the only one who survives. And the mm-hmm. uh, the sailor goes, "Oh, okay. Wait, what?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so. it is. I was just, and I, I alluded to this earlier, but I was just impressed by how the Trojans are so nice in this, on average, yep. and the Greeks, the Greeks are so nasty because normally you'd you'd expect it the other way around. Because in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Greeks are the heroes, right? But in this telling, it's like the Greeks, with the exception of Achilles, are a bunch of jerks. And the Trojans, with the exception of Cassandra, are really nice. I think it's a bit of a like a little classic of that, you know, the trope of swapping things around yeah. from the expected. And uh, yeah, it, it, but again, Donald Cotton's um, writing style, I think it seems to encompass that sort of fun little turnabout. Yeah, I think it also helps us sympathize with the Trojans and, you know, and also and and indirectly helps us sympathize with Troilus. Right. So this is how it makes it more understandable how Vicky can fall in love with him. And we feel the tragedy of Troy more because these are a bunch of good guys. And yep. and they – oh, and that was something else I was going to mention. That was what got away from me. Um, the So they portray the, the Trojans as a um, horse-based culture from farther east in Asia. And actually that's um, that's accurate. Oh. I mean, I don't know specifically about the Trojans, but there, it, there was this horse-based culture in the uh, in the Central Asian steppes that then migrated to the West, and they and I don't know that they literally worshipped horses, but they 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 thought extremely highly of horses. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the background to how in this the Trojans worship a, a god called the 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 great horse of Asia, which they think the Trojan horse is a representation of. And one of the things that's interesting in this is they they don't really think it's a gift from the Greeks. They think the Greeks has have left, and this representation of their deity has shown up. Right. There's there's also a line earlier where Priam is talk Priam is talking to Vicky and he says, "Oh, a Trojan would do anything for a horse," and it's like, <laughs> "Okay, that uh, that's a setup. That's going to yeah. go somewhere." <laughs> yes, yes, that's foreshadowing. Excellent. All right, and uh, so that is the Myth Makers. We do have quite a bit of feedback, as I promised, and let's get to that right now. Our first feedback comes from our discussion on the Twelfth Doctor story, Hellbent. Uh, this one comes from Dutchman's Mine on YouTube, who wrote, Great episode. I agree that this and Heaven Sent are really a mixed bag. I particularly don't like how the Doctor gets the Time Lords on his side just to betray them, particularly the General. 
I understand he's mad about Clara's death, but that was really out of character. Uh, And just one thing, never eat pears. uh, The doctor's dictum is from human nature. The episode right after blink in the uh, 10th doctor's time. Yeah. I believe it originated though, uh, unless I'm mistaken as a, as uh, something that David Tennant said while improvising the videotape inserts for the DVDs in blink. And it it didn't end up getting used or it got sped up to where you couldn't hear it. But I believe it was originally an ad lib from David Tennant in the in the stuff they were recording to have found on the DVDs in Blink. Right. And then they they must have liked it so much they added it yeah. as a line in human nature. Yeah. Yep. All right. And then on the uh, the fifteenth Doctor story, the church on Ruby Road, uh first comment comes from Jason on YouTube, who writes, there's no way Mrs. Flood could be the Ronnie. BBC can't use her because she belongs to Pip and Jane Baker, who wrote both of the episodes she appeared in. The whole mysterious female must be the Ronnie, like Mavity, needs to stop. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's the Ronnie either. And I don't think we're likely to see the Ronnie anytime soon because the Ronnie is too much like the master. And um, and so I, I don't see any reason to introduce the Ronnie. Uh, hypothetically, they could license it from the estate of Pip and Jane Baker. Um, you know, they could license the character, but I don't see any reason to go out of their way to do that. Right, and then there'd be too much confusion with Missy, who you know was mm-hmm. most recently a master, and yeah, that that would be that would be weird. Um, I I still go back to what you and I said, which was um, I think you and I said, which was that mm-hmm. it's just Russell T Davies winking at the audience. But uh, we have some more comments on that. Yeah, uh, Doug's film and TV uh, on YouTube writes. I think this special was good and fun, and I love how they told it from Ruby's perspective. And it was a bit like Rose, the first episode in the New Who era. I did love Shooty Got was Fifteenth Doctor, and he did make an impression. And I love Ruby's character, and she had a good backstory. One of the things that raised a red flag for me was Ruby's parents. When I heard there was no DNA trace of her parents, it didn't make any sense. Do you think Ruby's parents could be from the future or the past? I think it's possible. I think that they're likely to explore that mystery with us further over the course of the next season or two. Yeah. I, I didn't think there being no DNA trace, though, is that significant. I mean, I think it, there's, there's probably there are, millions yeah. of people who don't have a DNA trace in any system. So. Yeah, I, I don't think it's exceptionally implausible that they not have have a, you know find a relative who's close um, mm-hmm. in in a DNA database. But I do think that there is a mystery here that we'll get more information about. Yep. Uh, a shelter came up as a topic in our feedback in this episode, and so Sage of Rukaseka writes: I have one question regarding a shelter. Did she turn anyone anyone into a newt? She turned <laughs> me into a newt. <laughs> oh, it, it but, got better. It got better. <laughs> Speaking of Monty Python, uh, C. Byzand on YouTube writes: I wonder if Mrs. Flood is Susan. And that actually came up in our discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I don't think so. I think yeah. I think if they bring Susan back, it's going to be Caroline Ford, and I'm rooting for that. Yeah. Except the original Susan only, no substitutes. <laughs> right. Uh, Mark Casanta writes, I find it striking that Ruby, played by Millie Gibson, looks very much like Clara, played by Jenna Coleman. Is that on purpose? I don't think they look that much alike, honestly. <laughs> it, I mean, well, their hair color is certainly different. I think yeah. their, their bodies and facial features might be a little similar. I'd have to look again. Yeah, I mean, they have a similarly roundish face, but... And yeah. and Jenna Coleman famously has a really wide face. Yeah, yeah. Um, then the Cloister Bella Journey Through Time and Space writes, Excellent video as always, gentlemen. I too tired of the constant speculation on who Mrs. Flood is. Davies has a knack of attempting to generate fans trying to figure out these things. I'm quite sure there'll be an arc of some kind. I'm definitely with Jimmy on the idea of Caroline Ford returning. After all, the doctor himself said at the end of the Dalek invasion of Earth that one day he would come back. Why the writers haven't done that yet remains a mystery, much like the eighth. Uh, Such a great doctor. Bring him back and stop inventing new doctors like the war doctor and fugitive doctor. One last thing. Oh, if you can respond to that, I'll give us one last thing. Yeah. Um, well, in Big Finish, they have had uh, the writers for Big Finish have had the Doctor come back, the Eighth Doctor specifically. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole set of stories with Susan and the Eighth Doctor. 
And it kind of leads up to a su- a, a story. I want to. It may be called All Hands on Deck. I forget. It's a short, but it's read by it. It's read by Carol Ann Ford, and it, it and the Eighth Doctor is kind of present in it, but it's not a it's not a two person play. It's one of their you know short tracks, effectively. Um, so Carol Ann Ford reads it, and it's basically the Eighth Doctor has been manipulating events in her life, in Susan's life, to keep her from getting the message to join the Time War. And it ends with Susan deciding she's going to do her duty as a Time Lord and and return to Gallifrey uh. um, to fight in the Time War. Ooh. And it's a very dramatic kind of capstone to that set of adventures with Paul McGann and Carol Ann Ford. Nice. I'm looking forward to those. Um, and then the cloister bell finishes. One last thing. If Jimmy trimmed his beard and wore a baseball hat, he'd be a dead ringer for Bobby Singer from Supernatural. So, yeah, I haven't seen that show. I did look up the character and okay. I can see some facial similarities, but I think his, his beard is a different color than mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it either. Although, mm-hmm. uh, friends have recommended it. Uh-huh. Um, then Arnott Hill adds, it seems to me that Mrs. Flood is familiar with time travel, but not that particular TARDIS, hence her unfamiliar response to it appearing. So I guess that she knows of Gallifrey, but not the Doctor? Who is she? I'm happy to wait. Great show, guys. So um, we'll back to just the our previous speculation. She's probably nobody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then Kelly Brown. Well, she, she, to- could be, she could be someone, but I think, I think that <clears throat> if you watch her character art carefully over that episode – I don't see a strong basis for her being anybody significant. Right. Uh, Then uh, a longtime listener, Kelly Brown, uh, writes in, To be honest, I came into this episode not too excited. After the last few years of mediocre at best Doctor Who, I got to the point where I pretty much felt nothing about the show. I didn't hate it, but I definitely didn't love it like I did before. My feeling about Doctor Who was meh. I found myself pleasantly surprised during this episode. It was a very fun episode, and so far I like the new Doctor. I think he and the new companion play off each other very well at the end of the episode, as all the plot points were being wrapped up. I found myself grinning, or as all the plot points were being wrapped up, I found myself grinning. I then realized that it had been a long time since I smiled while watching Doctor Who. I'm not sure what the future of the series holds, but I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, I enjoyed this. I thought the episode was fun, too, and I found myself enjoying it in ways that, like, wow, it's been a long time. You know, yes. I was basically waiting for the Chris Chibnall era to be over. There were, <laughs> right. things, there were things in the Chris Chibnall era I liked, but they were not like the, like the Fugitive Doctor, for example, but they were few and far between. Right. And dominantly, it's just like, I can't wait for this era to be over and we can have a fresh start. Yes, and this is a promising start. Uh, and then finally, Nana Gaga 2001 on YouTube writes, When the doctor goes back to Ruby Road to save the baby Ruby, he sees the woman who left the baby walking away. Since he's aware how much Ruby wants to know her mother, I fully expected him to follow the woman to find out. Maybe the writers are saving that reveal for later, but it felt like the doctor, it left the doctor looking uncaring at least. Also, it seems that this doctor and companion pairing have established that their style of communicating is talking excitedly over each other i haven't decided whether it's cute or annoying hmm. so in, yeah. in terms of the i i think yeah we're going to get more exploration of the mystery of ruby's parentage uh i think the woman in the snow may be ruby herself as an adult that's but, what yeah yeah but that was my I, guess i i don't i but i don't think she's her own mom Right. Being your own grandfather is enough. Being your own mom is a whole different (laughs) level. Yeah. Um, But, but yeah, in terms of, I could see how someone might think it makes the doctor look uncaring, but I, in his defense, I would say he hasn't yet bonded with her as a companion. And he's, his immediate concern is, is the timeline back on track? Right. And so he's he's got other things on his mind at that moment than trying to solve this mystery. Right. He's going to get back to make sure that um, Mrs. Sunday, uh, I forget what her, her first name is, you know, she was back to have been foster mother to all of those 30 some odd children. Including in, Ruby. 
And, and, and furthermore, the doctor could even have an excuse here and say, I was afraid if I went and talked to that woman, it could upset the timeline further. This, yes. is a, this is a crucial moment. This is a crucial night. If I talk to her and I and inspired feelings of motherhood in her, she could go right back and pick that baby up. Right. Exactly. Right. So, um, but the, the, you know, outside the story reason is because they want to sustain some suspense and they want to tell that mystery. All right. That's all of our feedback. We really do appreciate all the feedback we get. And uh, as we wrap things up, we want to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Patrick D, Patrick O, Mary C, David F, and Robert B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Simon Yannick, who edited this episode. So what did you think of The Myth Makers? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. Visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or watch the Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 10th Doctor and River Song Big Finish story, Precious Annihilation. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Hi, Ray Dominique. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, I will not tolerate interference from a fortune teller of notorious unreliability.
Bennett and Vicky Trapped on a planet where no hope for rescue is clear No one comes near, except for Kukillion He's a big monster who threatens them never to leave But would you believe they are the same people And Barbara shot your dog Such a hot party Fires are starting And float like the wind I'm trying to end In a Geodesic domes Heck of a home Hi-Fi the panda Is his only friend And the only thing helping him deal He's not even real Well, excuse me, mister Where did you get that? If the gear 1066 and all of that you're here in five, but you're not five kids. So we brought the watch. Well, I doubt it was a Norman Dick It's the time heaven. It's the time of legends, and if we're on course, gonna see a few guys about a horse. Vicky's falling for a boy from Troy. She should read a play, and that play should be Troilus and Cresto. May the gods bless ya. Kingdom kept the peace Katarina never saw The like in Greece As companions They're unmatched But I wouldn't get Too attached Altogether now They don't live through The Dalek master plan The Dalek master plan The Dalek master plan Caucasian dude with Asian clothes made me play Towers of Manaha. See how the clown ain't Billy about to down. I'm just a hand. I'm dying. Where's the nearest dentist? Electric field kick around. Stevens going savage, woke in the tower, pleased to meet you, Baldy. Then won't see this face for long. I'm the original. I am first one. I am the doctor. What's the who? What's the who? Oh, Barbara. Now you've spotted my favorite piece. <laughs> 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 